Well, this morning we continue in our Ordinary Time series in the Minor Prophets, and our goal, you might say, our kind of spiritual task is here, that using the light that we presently have in Christ to look back at what these prophets were saying and see what they might say to us as we endeavor to shape a life and a community in Christ. So this morning as we come to Amos, the introduction to the book of Amos in the message says this, more people are exploited and abused in the cause of religion than in any other way. Sex, money, and power all take a back seat to religion as a source of evil on the earth. In fact, religion is the most dangerous energy source known to humans. Isn't that a lovely way to start a sermon? (laughs) But that's what these prophets are up to. These prophets are in the business of doing something about the fact that religious people go off the rails. And what we're trying to do in this series during Ordinary Time is we're trying to welcome their work in our midst, to allow Amos, in this case, to scrutinize us, to make sure our religion and that our ongoing walk in Christ is kept honest and humble and compassionate. So in our text this morning in Amos 1 and 2, the snippets that you just uh, had read to you, um, there's a prophetic vision here where it just simply means that Amos, this humble farmer, shepherd, herder, is seeing what's real from God's point of view. And what he sees is God's anger and God's fury that God is, in a sense, you know, enraged at what's happening. And that, of course, raises the question, why? Why would God be so determinedly, doggedly against a reality, a set of circumstances? And the answer is always that in God's God's justice, in fact, you could say that God's justice comes from his grace, his good will, his loving kindness, his, his pure intention towards humanity. From that comes this insistence that you guys are swallowing the same old lie. That if you were to ask yourself what underlies that pattern of behavior, those eight oracles, where the nations around Israel and Judah are condemned by God for their behavior, if you were to ask what gives rise to them, why were those people doing what they were doing, the answer is that peoples and governments and families and friends and spouses all too often come to the place where they feel like I have to do whatever it takes to make me feel safe or get what I want. So you just ask yourself, why do nations do what they do against each other? Why do tribes do what they do against each other? Why? I mean, you know, James tells us because we quarrel and fight because we want things that we can't have, and we think the way to get them is through ways that abuse and harm others. So then the Lord roars. He thunders out these judgments, as Amos says. And again, I know this is difficult that you know, we don't have very many Christian bookstores anymore, but remember when we did? 
They were full of little trinkets that talked about how much God loved you and, you know, and always, you know, there was always just these messages of grace and peace, you know. You, you know, when did you ever go in a Christian bookstore and find like a thunderbolt and says, God thunders, you know, and you hung it in your family room, right? I mean, that's just not, you know, so these are, un this is uncomfortable for us. And it's especially uncomfortable, I think, for us as modern Christians. And I think, now just th think with me, and you're going to have to be careful, it points all through this series, and you're going to have to be careful this morning that you don't begin to engage in guilt and shame, because it's not going to do any good, and just don't go there. But what if you were a, a part of the genuinely oppressed poor somewhere on the continent of Africa, and you heard that the Lord was thundering and roaring, that the Lord was saying, I've had enough of this. Do you think you might hear that with different ears than the way we hear it? So the oppressed read these texts totally differently. It strikes their hearts totally differently than it strikes us. It strikes us as like, whoa, 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 slow down. I thought God was all about mercy and grace and kindness. What do you mean he's thundering and roaring? You know, that sounds like a really upset parent. You know, the kind of parent you might call child protective services on, right? What's going on here? And what's underneath it, actually, is God's own righteousness. That is to say, his insistence on his own righteous way because it is what is good and just for everybody, and that actually comes from his loving grace. So if we were to look at this in terms of like Bible study, if we were just look, like, just look at these two chapters, what's happening here is that Amos, kind of like a bird of prey circling its prey, is beginning to kind of hammer on all the nations around Israel and Judah and telling them the things that, that um, are offensive to God and hurting others. And, and Amos, like a good communicator, is setting Israel and Judah up. Because, of course, as, as Jews would have heard this, they would have been going, that's right, you go, God, you get them. You know, you tell Damascus, you tell Edom, you know, you go. And then suddenly he gets to Judah. And then at the end, he gets to Israel, where he essentially says, Israel, my beloved people, you are no better than your neighbors. And that you're full of hypocrisy and idolatry and oppression of the poor. So let's just look at these eight things really quick. First, one nation around Israel says that they threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. And this is a picture of cruelty and violence. The picture is, I mean, this is very hard for us because we don't have any tool like this, but if you can picture maybe a board with nails through it or something, it was, a, it was an old ancient tool that they used for many things. And the mental picture here is you're taking that and you're just raking it across the people. Just raking this sharp tool across this people. Another nation took captive whole communities and sold them. And of course, they're being um, challenged about disregarding the value and dignity of human life. Another, it says, a nation is this, this imagery of pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. And this is giving um, rise to seeing the inhumanity of their behavior. I saw a... Uh, Headline for an article in Time magazine. It said, discrimination, colon, an outbreak of bigotry. You know when this was written? 
1990. And the subtitle said, everyone says it's only human nature to despise one's neighbor. And the article went on to describe an academic, and you'll, you'll now, those of you who are old enough, will now begin to remember this history, as the article went on to sort of wring its hands over an epidemic of ethnic hatred that was sweeping the world. How Jewish seminaries in, sorry, <laughs> how Jewish cemeteries, <laughs> this little joke, how Jewish cemeteries in France and Italy were being desecrated, how Turks in Bulgaria and Koreans in Japan are viewed as infections in the national bloodstream, how Africa's Hutu and Tutsi tribes continue to slaughter one another. That's what's in view here, the, the rationale that gives rise to inhumanity. Or this other nation who, this analogy, they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Do you hear that? Something they wanted. I want to extend my borders. And you can just hear the rationale. It will be better economically. It'll protect us from our political enemies, right? Can you just hear the rationale for why nations do these things? But what it really is, what God wants to show them, is it's a burning hatred that just, that's justified almost always by some sort of social memory. I mean, there's a reason the Japanese and Koreans hate each other, you know, putting it starkly. There's a reason that Hutu and Tutsi hated each other. There's always a reason. There's always some deep social memory of hurts, some sort of deep-seated prejudices that then gives us the sense that we now have the right or the rationale to harm others. Another nation burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. And this is meant to, to show us the sign of ultimate contempt and desecration. If you want to understand it, if you picked up, you know, the USA Today tomorrow and read that a group of Ku Klux Klan people had exhumed the body of Martin Luther King and burned his bones in the street. That's what's going on here. It was the ultimate form of desecration. The ultimate form of saying, you don't matter, you're worthless. And now he gets to Judah and to Israel and says, God's people have rejected the law of the Lord and have been led astray by false gods. And here we get really to Amos's chief insistence. What Amos is really insisting on here at bottom line, and we'll see as we go through the rest of the book, is that Israel or God's people would once again begin to hear his voice, that they would once again hear and respond to the word of God. And this is important to him, not mostly for what we might think of as religious or spiritual reasons, but that it's a major test of their character and a major test of their deepest desires. Look, as somebody who's been studying the Bible for 40 years, I get that it's difficult. It is. There's no getting around that. It's a very difficult book. All kinds of authors, long history, different perspectives. It, it is a very difficult book. There's no getting around it. But that's not the major problem with the Bible. The major problem with the Bible is actually obeying the parts we do get. Because that is the test of our deepest real desires, not our stated religious you know, pronouncements, but what do we actually want? And this is actually a bit scary because God normally, not always, there's exceptions to every rule, but God normally cooperates with the present inclination of our will. So when one comes to the Bible 
not actually wanting to hear it, you know, in the way James talked about, to hear and do the word. Or when Jesus said to crowds of people, do you have ears to hear? This is what he meant. Jesus knew that most people didn't have ears to hear him. They had ears to filter and manage him according to what they wanted, according to what they desired, according to what they already believed was true. And so they would hear Jesus to filter and manage him. They didn't have ears to hear him. And Jesus knew that this was actually a great moral test. Goes on to say, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. If we wanted to think about this in today's terms, this is just classic human trafficking. It's classic human slavery. And, and what, of course, Amos is getting at here is what happens to people. It happens in war. Um, it happens in families. Is that people become only things. Look, you cannot truly harm someone until you first dehumanize them. As long as a person remains stunningly human to you, you, I mean, none of us are perfect. You might say a random thing that hurts somebody's feelings or something, but as long as somebody remains to you fundamentally human, you will not greatly hurt them. You can't. And so what happens is either consciously or subconsciously, we dehumanize people. And we, again, we even do it to friends. Well, so-and-so has done this sort of repeatedly. And so then, then we engage in this process of dehumanizing them. And then we can say awful things to them or do awful things. And, and this is what Amos is rising here. Father and son use the same girl. This is all about religious prostitution. The idea was that if you went to the temple and you had sacred sex with one of these prostitutes, that that would then um, sort of manipulate the gods and you would have better crops and better herds and that sort of thing. And then these last two things, they lie down beside every altar on garments, they take it and pledge. This is all about clothes. Now just think about how horrendous this would be in the eyes of God. Clothes that were taken from the poor to pay debts so they're taking their clothes to pay debts that were usually unjustly put upon the poor. And they were using those clothes to offer them to the Baals on the altars. Or in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. It's the same sort of thing. They would take people's wine if they owed them money. And so basically they're partying on the back of the indebted poor. Well, of course, this all just adds up to a gigantic misuse of religion whereupon people become worse human beings in the pursuit of their religion. And if you're wondering about our gospel reading this morning, what's going on here, this is the same thing. It's religion gone bad. So if you look at your text there, the question about fasting, this is just a classic case of religion as a cause of missing what God's doing right in front of their and sometimes our faces. That Jesus is saying, can't you see that God's kingdom is coming? You're missing what's happening right in front of your face under the guise of religion. With wineskins, Jesus says, you don't put wine in cracked containers. And this is a call to repentance. This is where Jesus is saying to them, your current views and practices of religion will not be able to receive and hold the inbreaking of God's kingdom. If you don't find some new ways of doing religious business, then again, you're going to miss what the Father's doing right in front of your faith, face. Picking grain on the Sabbath, again, this is Jesus saying, 
I am the Lord of all this. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I'm the Lord of religion, and religion must serve the work of God. So that's what's happening in our text. Well, what if there were a ninth oracle, not just eight from Amos, but what if there was a ninth oracle about contemporary America, California, about Orange County? You know, what might we be able to hear? So this is what I'm about to say is just symbolic. It's not even close to being comprehensive or exhaustive. And if we tried to go there, we would just all be depressed, um, maybe beyond hope. But I mean, just, so just, I want you to just hear these things sort of symbolically. Payday loans. Do you know that payday loans sometimes can end up costing somebody as much as 400% of what they borrowed? And these companies are literally trying to create repeat customers. Basically, we just want to put you on a hamster wheel that you will actually, you will literally never be able to get off. And you go, oh yeah, well that's just those dopey little strip mall companies. No, those are owned by huge banks. Huge banks underwrite the capital for those things. And that happens right underneath our nose all day, all the time. Or have you seen those signs, need money, get a loan for your car? Same sort of thing. Some poor person who has a, you know, $3,000 equity in a car or something, they go get it, and it just puts them on this treadmill, this hamster mill. Or World Vision, their latest statistics say that there are now 20 million modern poor today in slavery. 20 million people of the modern poor currently in human slavery, and that each year 5.5 million children are trafficked for sex or labor. Or what about the exploitation of Africa's valuable natural resources that over generations has just managed to yield more and more corrupt and brutal local leaders? Or, wow, I better look around the room here. Make sure no one's wearing a, what is it called, distressed jeans? And if you are, you're okay, don't worry. Symbolic. But you know how those distressed jeans happen? through sandblasting. And people stand with guns and denim in front of them, and for 15 hours a day, they engage in sandblasting so that we can have stonewashed jeans. And many, if not most of them, end up with lung disease that kills them. And we just go on and on and on and on. All these inadvertent, this is so complex, it's so nuanced, the world is so put together in ways that most of us will never even really be able to figure it out. And by the way, I should say, this is not just a Western, rich, white, or male problem. There's a professor uh, right up here at UCI who did a study that was written up in uh, 2013 in a New York Times article that I saw that's professor's name is Jacob Avery, and he spent 17 months with homeless men in Atlantic City. And what he discovered, not amongst mostly white, mostly or only male, or certainly not wealthy people, what he discovered was a hierarchy of exploitation, even amongst the homeless, a hierarchy of exploitation using food stamps and cigarettes, etc., to manipulate those who are below them in the chain. So where do we want to go with all this? Again, um, this is overwhelming. 
It really is. This, this is like, I mean the word specifically. It is overwhelming. And that for the vast majority of us sitting in this room, pretty educated people, global economics, political history, social anthropology, that's just over most all of our heads. We don't even really have the facts to judge comprehensively. And I'm certainly not trying to produce guilt or shame. It's just that we said we wanted to sit before these prophets over this long, ordinary time. And we just wanted to do our best to simply hear them such that they might gently begin to turn our hearts outward as a necessary part of spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. So what can be said is that in all of Jewish and Christian history, there has been a priority on the poor. And again, it's not meant to come from guilt or shame. It's meant to be an invitation to us to discover for ourselves in like self-authenticating ways, not mostly cognitive, but in experiential ways, to learn that there's a unique spiritual power that comes from caring for the poor, and that any apprenticeship to Jesus is incomplete without us. And this can be done in all sorts of ways. And, you know, having, you know, I had to sit with this all week. You guys only have to sit with it for 20 minutes. Um, and for me, sitting with this all week, especially being a bit of a perfectionist and being a bit of a fixer, it just drives me crazy, right? I just want to fix this. But we'll never get our arms around it. We can't. It's too big. The world's too complex. And it's getting more and more complex every day. And if you think it's bad now, what are we going to do a generation from now when there's, you know, a third more people again on the earth? Nine billion instead of six billion. So it's too big. So you say, then, okay, why are you telling us? Because just as Beth read Romans 12, 1 and 2, take your everyday ordinary life, your life that you now experience, right? You got that? With its present rhythms and routines, right? Just picture your life with its rhythms and routines and just ask yourself in that life, what can I do? That's all that's ever asked of us. Just what can I do? And again, it's never meant to be a, um, something that like, makes us less. It's meant to be an invitation that as we enter into it, we, are, we actually find that we're more human as God intended. So then, how do we hear these prophets without condemnation? How can we hear them? What I would like is that we could hear them with a kind of childlike, adventurous obedience that just felt something more like cooperation, um, you know, thinking of God's justice coming to the earth, Tom Wright has written that God intends to put the whole world to right. I mean, that's like just for a classic definition of the Hebrew notion of righteousness. God intends to put the world to rights. So hear this. So he puts us to right so that we can be a part of his putting to right people. That's all we're after. And that's where this bolts on precisely to our own spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. That God is putting us, us to right, not merely for our own piety, never, but for us to be a part of his putting the world to rights people. So how do we start? So in our moment of quiet here, I'd like to suggest a way of starting and I think the place to start is let's just begin to notice about ourselves what's really real. 
and to do this fearlessly because of our confidence in the love of God and grace and mercy of God. So how could we begin to really notice what's real fearlessly? Well, we have to have confidence, confidence in the love of God. So here are some sentences from Psalm 139 that may help you in quiet to begin to just notice what's real. And then let me say, just before I read these, that um, you may want to hook this to a moment to confession and maybe pay some special attention this morning to the voice of the Spirit now so that you can bring that into confession. The psalmist said, Investigate my life, O God, and find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. And get a clear picture of what I'm all about. And see for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. And then guide me on the road to eternal life. Investigate my life, O God, and find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm all about. And see for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. And then guide me on the road to eternal life.